0: Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslin, Karen Mann, Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. Today, guest host Linnell Edwards is with us. Linnell is the Associate Program Director and Poetry Faculty Member at Spalding University's Nazlin Mann Graduate Program in Writing. Her latest book of poetry is This Great Green Valley, a chapbook of documentary poetry based on revisionist narratives of Kentucky's pioneer founding in the 18th century. Three additional full-length poetry collections, Covet, The High Woman's Wife and the Farmer's Daughter, were published by Red Hen Press. A chapbook from Accents Publishing, Kings of the Rock and Roll Hot Shop, chronicles the work and art of a glass-blowing studio. Her short fiction, book reviews and essays, have appeared in another Chicago magazine, New Madrid, Connecticut Review, among others. Today on the podcast, Linnell is in conversation with award-winning poet Maggie Smith.
1: I'm Linnell Edwards, and today I'm talking with Maggie Smith, who is most recently the author of the memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, an instant New York Times bestseller after it it was released this spring, and six other award-winning books of poetry and prose, including Goldenrod, Keep Moving, and Good Bones. Smith's poems and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The Nation, The Best American Poetry, The New York Times, and more. She's a freelance writer and editor, and she serves on the MFA faculty of the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. In 2023, she launched For Dear Life, a best selling Substack newsletter on writing and creativity, in which she pulls back the veil on the magical and sometimes the pedestrian process of writing a poem, and which I encourage all our listeners, readers and writers alike, check out welcome to the think humanities podcast maggie oh it's so good to be here with you it is great you have had a really busy spring since the launch of your new book you could make this place beautiful and i just saw i think on facebook that you wrapped up the launch tour in columbus have you caught your breath yet uh, mostly. Yeah,
2: I'm mostly done. My last book event was this week. So I'm, I'm off of airplanes at least for a little while and getting ready to have a, a pretty low key writing and hanging out with the kids summer.
1: <laughs> that sounds, that sounds terrific, right? Uh, hanging out with the kids sounds like maybe some camps and splashing around and
2: uh pool pass, uh, no camps. We are doing camp mom this year, which uh, we did last year. We just have a, a kind of like um the kind of summer that i used to have yeah you know as a gen x kid where you just like get to go hang out with your friends and go to the pool and not have a lot of structured time that's
1: that's how we roll here that sounds fantastic but you have been busy and among interviews and reviews and podcasts like this one you also received a generous new york times article in april and they called you and i have to have to ask about this that rare thing a celebrity Which is not what we poets usually hear or the response we get when we tell people we're poets.
2: No, and it's also sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? I mean, it just doesn't really make sense. Like, I think, like, to be known in the poetry world is not to be a celebrity. Like it's just not quite the same thing,
1: (laughs) right? Right. It's like right to be a really intense yogi. It doesn't work.
2: Yeah. No, it doesn't work. Like you're. I feel like you're. If you're really known in like a fairly like small, somewhat insulated community, it's not quite the same thing as like being an actual celebrity. Thank goodness. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I can go to Target. I can just go to Target.
1: A true liberty, a true no liberty. No
2: one cares. That's right.
1: And But as a poet, you now have written a memoir or maybe something else, or maybe you're not even certain about how and where we find the truth and beauty in telling the story of our dear, dear lives. So I wonder if you'd read a bit from the opening and maybe talk about the form of the book as it unfolds.
2: Yeah, I'll start. Um, the, the prologue references the epigraph. So I'll start with the epigraph which is uh, from Emily Dickinson. I am out with lanterns, looking for myself. Prologue. Before we go any further together, me with my lanterns, you following close behind, light flickering on both of our faces, I want to be clear about something. This isn't a tell-all. A tell-all would need an omniscient narrator, godlike, hovering over the whole scene, seeing into the houses, listening to the conversations and phone calls, reading the texts and emails. I'm jealous of this all-knowing narrator, even though she doesn't exist. I want to know what she knows. This isn't a tell-all because all is something we can't access. We don't get all. Some, yes. Most, if we're lucky. All, no. There's no such thing as a tell-all, only a tell-some A tell most, maybe. This is a tell mine, and the mine keeps changing because I keep changing. The mine is slippery like that. This isn't a tell all because some of what I'm telling you is what I don't know. I'm offering the absences too. The spaces I know aren't empty, but I can't see what's inside them. Like the white spaces between the stanzas in a poem. What is unspoken, unwritten there? How do we read those silences? The book you're holding in your hands was many books before it was this one. Nested inside this version are the others. The version I began deep inside my sadness, thumbed into my phone in bed on sleepless nights. The one I scribbled out with sparks in my hair. You'll see pieces of those books inside this one. Why? Because I'm trying to get to the truth and I can't get there, except by looking at the whole, even the parts I don't want to see. Maybe especially those parts. I've had to move into and through the darkness to find the beauty. Spoiler alert, it's there. The beauty's there. I know the real people who are part of this story, the story of my life, may read it. Most importantly, my children may read this book someday. Hi kids, I love you. I share this story with them because we share the life. But this tell mine is just that, my experience. There's no such thing as a tell-all because we can only ever speak for ourselves. Where do I begin? I could begin in my childhood. I could begin in a college classroom where I sat across from the man I would later marry. Or in a Denny's on State Route 23 where we wrote private jokes on the sugar packets. Or in our first apartment in Grandview, where I was hit by lightning the night we moved in. Or in the hospital where my children were born and I was born and my mother was born. Or on our last family vacation, when I packed my sadness and took it with us to the beach. Or in my lawyer's office, rubbing a small, sharp piece of rose quartz under the conference table. Or at the end of everything that was also somehow the beginning. Or in this moment. Writing to you, watching fog skim the roofs of houses across the street, as if the clouds had grown tired of treading air and had let themselves sink, or, or, or. This story could begin in any of these places. I'm beginning here.
1: So Emily Dickinson, um, how is she and why is she your guide through this purgatory? You know, I started writing this book before I had
2: the epigraph. Like, I I never know really where I'm going when I start writing anything, which I think the epigraph sort of speaks to also (laughs) being out with lanterns looking for oneself. And I came across that line and I don't think I'd ever read it before, which is always such a joy. Like when you find something from a poet that you feel like you kind of exhausted almost like I certainly I've read everything there is to read from this person Right. And I found this line and it was both unfamiliar and like completely familiar. Like, oh, that's what I'm doing in this book. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, a little bit more maybe about how this kind of came together. Yeah, I
2: knew I was writing a memoir, so I knew it would not be poems. Um, I knew that the the subject matter needed more um, real estate, really. Like I needed more uh-huh. space and and more ability to move. And so I knew it would be probably in vignettes going into it because I write small. And um, someone asked me recently, is that because you're a mom and, and all of this white space in the book is like, you know, stands in for interruptions when you're getting pulled away from the writing to to take care of two kids? And I, I'm like, no, but I love that. Like that that white space is meaningful too. It reminds me of, you know, like things that I read Lucille Clifton say about stirring the soup pot and getting back to the poem. Um, but really, really, I knew I would write small because I'm a poet. Yeah. And I couldn't do it any other way. I mean, I, I honestly don't know how to write this many pages without doing it as myself. Um, because as my friend Saeed Jones says, you can't ghostwrite your own memoir. Like you have to do it as you and not the way that you think, you know, for example, a prose writer would approach it. And so going into it, I knew that probably the individual pieces, I would approach them the way I approach a poem, which was with a lot of compression, heavy on the metaphor and image, a lot of trust, I think, in the reader that I could hand them something small and then step away from it and let them make some of the connections the way I do in poems. Um, and then allowing a lot of white space into the book as, you know, the same as in poems, as literal breathing room or, or you know, processing space for the reader to sit with something for a few minutes before moving on to the next bit.
1: Yeah, um, and the pieces mostly, or many of them certainly would stand alone, as a poem does, even as in the larger collection of a poem, you know, famously, the whole book makes itself a poem. Um, For folks who haven't or aren't familiar with the book, they may want to I want to sh- explain something that was surprising to me given what you've just said about the individual pieces which is of the many delights and surprises in this book the fact that it's is the fact that it's really a, a page Turner um mm-hmm. that it almost launches like a, a who done it with a compelling cast of characters the finder the addressee and a sort of smoking gun the pine cone um that was so surprising to me, In a lot of ways, but it was wonderful. Um, did it start that way? I mean, I couldn't stop reading. I'm there in my bed with my lantern, like you know, a 13-year-old on the covers going, I'm just gonna read one more. I'm just gonna read one more. Um, (laughs) because it was so compelling. Um, did you write it in chronological order or
2: no? I didn't. And it's actually funny that you said that because when I sent the galley to my father. He he responded with two things. One was I didn't know how much pain you were in.
1: Oh and wow! Two
2: was it. This must be a page turner because I can't stop reading it. And I thought that's so cool because I really I I sort of doubted my own narrative impulse or or like or like knack for it. You know, going into writing this book because I don't think of my poems as be as being particularly narrative or or propelled by storytelling you know, they tend to be sort of like more quiet and um, I think self-contained, like here's a moment, right? Very lyric. Right, very lyric. But the difference here I think is that there is like, um, there's a chain of events.
1: There is a chain of events.
2: That is important in this book. And so in, in that way, I I think what I realized was I was handed a plot in my life.
1: Yeah,
2: sort of like unwillingly, like when we when we realize like, oh, I'm part of a plot, but I didn't Um, actually like audition for this Um, and I don't have a script. So I actually don't even know myself what's going to happen next. But I can see that this thing is sort of unfolding in if I were reading it as a book, a really compelling way. Unfortunately, I'm living it. And most of these plot twists are painful Yeah. And not really welcome surprises. But but I I mean, I guess, you know, from a a writerly perspective, I'm glad I'm glad that you felt like it propelled you through. (laughs) Well,
1: absolutely. It it did. And even even though I know how it turns out from knowing you personally, um, yeah. I know how the story ends um, and I know Maggie now. And even so I'm still gripped um, in that way. At the same time, you know, this does feel like a book that it, could have only been written by a poet. There are repeat, repeated phrases and images like poetic motifs that stitch together the brief chapters that range from, you know, a few sentences to two pages to even a single sentence into a whole that's just much greater than the sum of its very compelling parts. Um, there are repeated titles and images, for instance, of you swinging your lance, swinging your lantern as you find your way through your life. Um, specific words and phrases like the material um, that are explored in its many denotations, depending on the context, or the ways ghost. Can be a noun and a verb and these kind of gather force as they accumulate through the book um talk about your intentionality with that kind of poetic trope development in the structuring
2: yeah i i love i love that all of those breadcrumb trails came through it always oh, yeah like so satisfying when someone's like i love how you took this and then it pops up later i'm like oh it worked um yeah i i did not write this in chronological order I wrote it in pieces and then sort of the way memory works associatively, I would be writing about something and then I would be reminded of something else that felt connected and I would hop away and start working on the next thing. Um, And so really the sort of assembly process for this was writing every bit, printing the whole thing out as I do my collections of poems, Uh laying all of the pages out on the living room floor as I do with a collection of poems and so it was much more uh, an assembly process like I do with poetry than what I hear from prose friends who are like, and then I made an outline. And then I, what is that? I have no idea. So I certainly didn't do that. But what I did do was use um, markers. So I color coded each individual strand as I saw it in the book. So if the quotes from other writers was one color, the unanswerable questions were a color, the italicized sections that are sort of me playing with different metaphors for what this time was like, a color, the forward moving plot that's kind of the spine of the book from finding all the way through is is a color. The flashbacks about my kids, a color. And so I like got Crayola markers, printed all the pages, and just swiped the top of each. And some of them, I wasn't sure. I'm like, is this yellow or blue? Like it straddles a line, swiped colors on all of these different things. And then as I was assembling, I didn't want any one color to drop out for a chunk of time. I wanted each trail that I was asking the reader to follow to stay fairly consistent. It wasn't scientific. It wasn't like blue, blue, yellow, pink, green but i w- i just noticed if i was flipping through and i hadn't gotten i there was no pink for 20 pages i'd be like uh oh, whatever pink is if it's concentrated now in this one section i need to leaf that through in a more kind of um uniform way yeah and the funny thing was <laughs> i don't know if there's anything more deeply contextualizing that i've ever done in my life than writing a memoir
1: <laughs> yeah
2: Right. Because it's it invites you slash forces you, depending on how you want to look at it, what mood you're in that day to look at all the ways that things echo each other or the ways that different times of your life or pieces of your life touch or overlap. Like, where are these kind of rhymes across years and across times? And so, you know, writing the book, I realized I'd made this metaphor about a shark in the water, And I think it was not until the very last draft when I should have just been making like copy editing changes. You know, they don't really want you adding. No, they don't. (laughs) But guess what I did. They don't really want you adding at that stage. And it occurred to me that my wedding dishes, the kind, the dishes that I had and registered for are called great white.
1: Ah, right, right.
2: So, I added it into the book because I was still, even at that late stage, finding and making connections between metaphors and motifs and like this part of my life and this part of my life. But oh my gosh, what are the odds? Like, if you wrote that in a fictional book, it would be too on the nose. You couldn't give a character dishes called Great White and right. then have an image of a shark. It's too on the nose. But the thing about The thing about memoirs, all the -the on-the-nose things happened that way.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there it is. There it is. Yeah. Um, Did you find yourself when you had laid them all out like that, and that process certainly sounds familiar, um, that you needed to write towards some things or do more of a pink or a green or fill in in particular ways?
2: Yeah, yeah. Like I would realize, like, oh my gosh, there, I think there's too much of this, this color. Like uh-huh. I don't think we actually need this many. I I mean, I took out some really sweet chapters of, you know, memories of of raising my kids or things that we're doing now because it felt like the balance wasn't right quite right. Or well, like, gosh, Rhett gets a lot an awful lot of airtime. Maybe Violet should get a little more airtime. Like, yes, I
1: understand that. <laughs> you know,
2: like that seems that seems like that seems fair. Um, and and also just mood. like I didn't want it to get, and I realized the first third of the book is heavier than the second two-thirds of the book. And I didn't realize that. I, I realized it a bit when I was editing, and I, I tried to get more of my sort of gallows humor in because that really is who I am as a person, and also a big part of how I coped through these years was if you can't laugh at the mess, then what? Um, but I realized that even more reading it aloud when I narrated the audiobook. And I had to do the first third of the book in five hours on one day. And it was so painful for me personally. And I thought, gosh, I hope readers stay with me because day two and three of recording that book were so much lighter. And it really hit home to me how much weight falls in the first part of the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Um, we're gonna get you to read a little bit more, but now we'll take a brief pause to hear from our underwriter of the Spalding University, Sina Jeter Naslin, Karen Mann, Graduate School of Writing.
0: Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing prepares students to publish, produce and find professional success. Alumni publish books with top presses, write for television and film and have plays produced around the country. They work as editors, professors, media professionals, content developers, and more. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spaulding.edu mfa or email schoolofwriting at spaulding.edu.
1: I'm Linnell Edwards, and I'm talking with writer Maggie Smith about her memoir, um, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Would you read a bit um, from a little bit later uh, in the book?
2: Yeah, I think I'll read. Um, so these are these are from two different colored strands. Um, they live back to back because of the assembly. I'll read a little bit. Um, one of these italicized sections that's me kind of playing with me, uh, metaphor, really trying to wrap my head around this, this time of my life. And then another strand, which is me thinking through um, sort of narrative itself. And like what happens when we have to tell a story about our lives and we have to think about our lives as plot, which is a really kind of uncomfortable thing. How I picture it. We are all nesting dolls carrying the earlier iterations of ourselves inside We carry the past inside us. We take ourselves, all of ourselves, wherever we go. Inside 40-something me is the woman I was in my 30s, the woman I was in my 20s, the teenager I was, the child I was. Inside divorced me, married me, the me who loved my husband, the me who believed what we had was irrevocable and permanent, the me who believed in permanence. I still carry these versions of myself. It's a kind of reincarnation without death. All these different lives we get to live in this one body as ourselves. A note on foreshadowing. It's a mistake to think of one's life as plot, to think of the events of one's life as events in a story. It's a mistake. And yet there's foreshadowing everywhere, foreshadowing I would have seen myself if I'd been watching a play or reading a novel, not living a life.
1: So when you read the prologue, um, I realized, oh. She's doing the nesting thing in the prologue because there's that version of I could go back to sitting across from this man in the college classroom. I could go back to the diner. I could go back to this and this. And I'm thinking, oh, it's nesting. It's it's kind of capsulized. Um, and then here it is actualized in, in a more uh, concretely metaphorical way. Um, what is the role of these these? And there's several of these meditations. They're in italics throughout. Mm-hmm. How do they work in
2: the book you know these most like many of these italicized sections actually started out as poems
1: oh interesting
2: like okay. proper poems um and i didn't know what to do with them and i wasn't sure i really wanted this this book to be to have like actual verse in it in that way i mean it does uh-huh. feature a few poems mostly to sort of contextualize like this is what was happening in my life when this poem was written or when this particular poem was published but i knew i really wanted the book to be prose and and you know that i love a prose poem
1: you do love a prose poem
2: <laughs> so i really think of these italicized sections um they're they're kind of straddling a line between like a okay. flash lyric essay i think and yeah. a prose poem and as I was kind of like figuring out what I wanted them to do I was like nope we're leaving them in italics because I really want to separate them visually from the rest of the book they're the only um vignettes that don't have a title so they kind of float themselves on the page and they all begin with how I picture it so it's kind of like a run-in title like you would get the poem and the only other difference is I wanted the voice of those sections to be a little more formal, like a little more somber and less talky than the voice in most of the rest of the book. So there are almost no contractions in the italicized sections. And that was a way of me kind of pulling out the kind of like poetic sort of meta speak out of the telling of the story.
1: Yeah, they do have a different tone, and now that you explain why that is, it's, duh, obvious, and <laughs> my, my my first impression, and I, I thought this is almost a, con- not a contradictory impression, I was like, oh, wow, I'm surprised I'm feeling this, um, was that this is so intimate, the voice is so intimate, the address to the reader, and I'm here, and it's just me with the lantern, and I keep coming back to that, but it's a very intimate um. Uh, voice that somehow at the same time doesn't feel confessional, but it's beautiful. Oh, thank you. I, I think I love
2: that actually. I mean, I, maybe the, maybe the sort of like pushing against the confessionalism is, is the, like the boundary setting that happens in the book, you know, where it's like, you don't really get in, in something that would be sort of classically confessional, someone telling you, you probably want to know more about this, but I'm not going to give that to you because that's not for you. So there's some pushback between me and the reader where I'm kind of inviting the reader in mostly, but there's still like, um, like a back room that the reader does not have access to, because that is like, that is for my close circle.
1: Yeah. Um, and I mean, interestingly, again, rather than than that, having an aloof, um, inaccessible feel, it feels even more intimate. I'm Um, so
2: glad. I worried about it, honestly. I realized that the breaking of the fourth wall and that kind of boundary setting in the book would probably be a love it or loathe it aspect of the book for most readers like it has a distinct flavor you know it's like it's not vanilla so either someone will be like oh that's so interesting I like that it, that makes me feel like I'm part of the story and I respect this choice and I also knew that for everyone who who felt that way there would be someone who was like this is annoying I wish you would either just tell us everything or not bring up The fact that you don't get to know. The fact that you don't get to know. But I mean, honestly, I saw writing this book and telling this particular story in this way as an opportunity to to have a bigger conversation about life writing and privacy and to really kind of self-interrogate my own curiosity and my own impulse to want to know things about, frankly, about strangers' lives. And like, what are we owed But, you know, what are we owed as readers when we enter someone else's story? And and also on the flip side, what do we owe, if anything, the reader, if we're offering them our life? And I really wanted to be able to kind of have that meta conversation about writing in the book itself.
1: Right. And... Great segue, because that points to, I think, these other repeated, um, I'm going to say also kind of a structuring device, a note on, and it, yeah. it's like a creative writing 101 class, a note on plot, a note on character, a note on motifs, and you read a note on foreshadowing, and there are several of these, there are several notes on foreshadowing, um, why is that?
2: Well, I mean, I think when, when you're surprised in your life... <laughs> The, the first impulse you have probably is to think, why didn't I see that? Yeah. And, and one of the first questions people will ask you is, did you have any idea or were there any clues, right? Because it's like this sort of mystery. Um, I, re- I spoke to Glennon Doyle fairly recently and she said, you know, the most frustrating thing about life is how you're expected to be both the detective and the mystery,
1: Oh, fantastic. And I thought that's
2: exactly right. Like part of you is supposed to be able to have the big picture understanding of your life, figure it all out, map things out, make plans and quote unquote, get it. But then really part of you and and the magic of living and being human is that you never really have your finger exactly on anything. And nothing is mappable or really truly foreseeable um, or really even knowable, which is, delicious and frustrating. Um, And so foreshadowing was like the, the thing I, I thought about and sort of ruminated over most, which is like, how did I not know? How did I not see? What was there to see? Maybe there was nothing to see. And that's why I didn't see it. Or maybe it was concealed. And for how long? And I mean, I think this is the, the kind of unraveling that we that we do when life presents us with new information.
1: <laughs> You're right, and you did get some new information that, <laughs> that com- compels the memoir. Um, I imagine for many readers and um, including our listeners that You Could Make This Place Beautiful will be their introduction to your work, but first and foremost, you are a poet of remarkable gifts, and I'm so happy you've chosen to talk about and read the short vignette and poem that closes the book, Bride, which comes from the wonderful collection, Goldenrod, which was released in 2020, just in time for the pandemic, Um, and it's a beautiful, I'm going to put a plug in for Goldenrod, because like a lot of books in 2020, it just was like hard to do the things you wanted to do. And Goldenrod is is a, a, a wonderful book. And um, I'm so glad to have read that going into this memoir too. Oh, thank you. I, I feel like they're of a piece a little bit. Um, and so the poem, but you're gonna read the vignette that precedes it and then that poem.
2: Yeah, so this, this is the end of the book. So I guess I, this is the spoiler. So if you haven't read the book, this is the end. Um, I don't think it gives really anything away too much though calling myself darling. When my poem Bride was first published, I was in Florida teaching a week-long workshop at a poetry festival. Each day between morning classes and afternoon lectures and panel discussions, I managed to carve out enough free time to walk a little over a mile from my hotel to the beach. As an Ohioan, I couldn't be that close to the Atlantic and not gape at it as often as possible. On that day, I stopped at the news shop picked up two copies of The New Yorker, and carried them down to the beach in my tote bag. I sat down on a bench, pulled off my boots and socks, then walked barefoot across the sand to the slap and fizz of the waves breaking. Something about being at the ocean always reminds me of how small I am, but not in a way that makes me feel insignificant. It's a smallness that makes me feel a part of the world, not separate from it. I sat down in a lounge chair and opened the magazine to my poem, the thin pages flapping in the wind. In that moment, I felt like I was where I was meant to be, doing what I was supposed to be doing. Life, like a poem, is a series of choices. Something had shifted, maybe just slightly, but perceptibly. I remember feeling the smile on my face the whole walk back to the hotel, hoping it didn't seem odd to the people around me. I stopped at the drawbridge that lifted so the boats could go under. The whole street lifted up right in front of me. Nothing seemed impossible anymore. Everything was possible. Bride. How long have I been wed to myself, calling myself darling, dressing for my own pleasure, each morning choosing perfume to turn me on? How long have I been alone in this house, but not alone? Married less to the man than to the woman, silvering with the mirror. I know the kind of wife I need, and I become her. The one who will leave this earth at the same instant. I do. I am my own bride, lifting the veil to see my face. Darling, I say, I have waited for you all my life.
1: Oh, that poem, it's 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 something, um, It's yeah, uh, and there's something in a nesting doll in it, too, that you've gotten somehow now through it and to this, there at the ocean, doing the thing you want to do and being the person you want to be at that moment, and, you know, maybe we'll d- be different people at different moments, but that you've gotten at that most central, radiant version of yourself, maybe. maybe. Um,
2: I love that.
1: Um, yeah, and um, throughout the book, maybe this is part of the intimate voice too, you you want to have done something with the material mm. that readers can take with them. So that even as you're holding back and saying, no, this you can't know, you're also saying, I want something for you. I want you to take something from this. And it, it almost feels like maybe this is it.
2: Yeah, maybe you're the person you were waiting for.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's really beautiful. Not that it wasn't a struggle and striving to get there, but it, it's just a, a beautiful poem and a, a marvelous way to, to close the book. Um, and so... Newly wed. Um, are you willing to say something about what beautiful thing you're working on now or working towards? Maybe it's just mom camp all summer, which would be awesome. Oh,
2: it's gonna be mom camp all summer. But the beautiful thing about mom camp is my kids are now old enough to busy themselves for most of the oh, yeah. day. And they they actually, I mean, they love me and they like to be with me, but like, you know, I'm not their favorite hangout companion. They're they're old enough to to want to be with their own people. So so my hope is that it will be a writing summer. My next book that's will be out is done. So I, I won't be working on it, but it's um, a picture book for children that will be out in February of next year called My Thoughts Have Wings. So I'm just sort of getting, you know, final pages and and looking at like cover art and stuff now, which is brilliant. And I can't, I can't wait. That will be a very different experience, sort of shepherding sure. that book into the world. I think it will be 100% joyful and very uncomplicated. And I'm very excited about it. We'll see how that goes. Um, and then the the book I'm, I mean, I'm working on poems. I'm always working on poems. So that's, that's happening. And I'm always writing for the Substack. Um, Although travel has made that more difficult. So I'm excited to get back to doing that more regularly. Um, but my, then the next, next thing is a book on writing and creativity and it's essays. So that's the thing that I'm really going to be um, devoting myself to this year.
1: That sounds fantastic. Well, we will look for it. And so thank you, Maggie Smith, for joining us on the Think Humanities podcast. And best wishes as you go forward with your new and wonderful book and with everything else that you're writing towards and against. Ah, Thanks for having me.
0: Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.